Welcome to the History West Midlands series of programmes about the Staffordshire Horde, where we're looking at new information, stories and ideas emerging from the current research into the Horde. I'm Jenny Butterworth. I am the programme coordinator for the Staffordshire Horde and I work for Birmingham Museums Trust and the Potteries Museum and Art Gallery in Stoke-on-Trent. Today we've got three people who are at the forefront of investigating the Horde to understand how it was made. We've got Chris Fern, who is the lead archaeologist for the Staffordshire Horde Research Project, which is funded by Historic England and the owners. We've got Ellie Blakelock, who is an archaeological scientist who is using scientific techniques to look at the material science of the Horde. And we've got Pieter Greaves, who is the conservation coordinator for the Horde at Birmingham Museums Trust and is responsible for the conservation and care of the objects. Today we are going to address probably the most asked visitor question, which is, how was the Horde made? I think anyone who's seen it is immediately struck by how beautiful it is but also how small and how complicated the objects are, and that in order to make them, the craftsmen were working at a tiny scale. So if we think back to when the Hall first came to the Museum Pieta, there were several thousand objects, but they were still covered in mud. They were obviously predominantly made of gold and silver. What was the first thing that needed doing? So the first thing we needed to do is to start sort of to understand what we had. So a general sorting process did take place where we got some of the larger fragments together and then we looked at different material types to see if we can sort of put them together in just generic groups to start to understand it at least a little bit before we began the cleaning. Is cleaning then the main priority? First of all it is because the key really is to understand what you have before you can move forward. So removing the soil either partially or fully for each object so we can make more and more groupings to understand is very important. And then that's I guess where you come in Chris. The research project was established to understand the hoard, which is still ongoing. It isn't finished yet, but as the objects are becoming clean and it's possible to see what they are and understand them, what's your priority from an archaeological point of view? My priority is to fit all the different bits of the puzzle together as much as we can. We're dealing with many hundreds of objects, in some cases in many fragments. Uh, the total fragment count is nearly 4,000, five kilograms of which is gold and about a kilogram and a half is silver. And it's trying to make sense of that and put it into object groups and look at what we have in the hoard altogether. And of course, as we've already addressed in previous programmes, we're looking at a hoard that's mainly made up of fittings from weaponry, mainly swords, but there's also at least one helmet in some 1,500 fragments. And there is also a small but significant collection of Christian objects. Clearly from the start it was obvious this is a treasure find and a large portion of it is gold and that's where you come in, Ellie. So just tell us why it's important to understand the gold and the gold working in this period. Um, there's an awful lot we don't know about gold working in the period to begin with. We haven't actually done the research on ancient gold and Anglo-Saxon gold. So um, to actually be able to start studying 
a, such a big collection of gold objects from this period is actually quite exciting. So what techniques can we use to understand gold? There are a variety of different techniques. Most of them use x-rays to actually get the chemical information from the gold. The main technique that's being used is a thing called surface XRF, which is x-ray fluorescence. But this has the um, disadvantage of it not only looks at the surface, but actually it can penetrate deeper into the core. Because you're also including that surface layer, it doesn't give you the full representative of the object you're looking at. So we also started to look at using um, a technique called um, scanning electron microscope. And this is to actually get a better idea of what's going on, differences between the surface and the core of the object. And it's important to say that the reason that we're using these sophisticated techniques to examine this particular aspect of the hoard, the gold and how it's worked, is because what we're really trying to get to is an understanding of how the objects were made and indeed the people that made the objects. These objects in the hoard and other high status gold, garnet and silver objects from Anglo-Saxon England represent our best evidence for the elusive craft workers of the Anglo-Saxon period. One of the great things about the hoard is because so many of the objects have suffered damage to one extent or another, we're actually able to also look at their manufacture as it's been deconstructed by the process of the object's removal. The work you've been doing to look at the difference between the surface of the gold and the inside of the gold object, if you like, what's that told us that's new? Well, basically, what we've done is we've actually discovered that the Anglo-Saxon goldsmiths were deliberately removing silver from the surface to create a more golden effect. Now, this is something we had no idea they were doing in this period. In ancient gold, it is actually rarely pure gold. There is actually always a little bit of copper in there, and usually quite a large amount of silver is in the gold. So when we talk about Anglo-Saxon gold, it is a mixture. Now... In the burial environment, the copper can be leached from the gold, and this will leave a slight enrichment on the surface. But in the burial environment, it's very rare for silver to be lost. So the fact that we've got this huge loss of silver from the surface means that they are deliberately moving this silver during the manufacturing process. And this will change the colour of the gold, so it'll look different, it'll look more golden. Um, but it is just the surface. It's not actually removing silver from the whole object. So are we saying that Saxon goldsmiths are deliberately making objects look more gold than they are? Now, it's a little bit more complicated than that because what they're actually doing is they're choosing certain components of an object. So an object will be built up of a backing sheet which will have then filigree wires attached to the surface what they're doing is they're actually removing the silver from the sheets. And this is actually making the sheets behind more golden and bringing out the contrast between the wires which have been left the same, which is an interesting thing. And we've never thought they were doing something quite so complicated. And it's all about giving a bit more contrast to the designs and bringing out those designs. OK, so this goes back to what we've talked about in previous episodes, Chris, that there are a lot of really sophisticated and subtle design choices going on with these objects potentially. Yes, that's right. These objects are the result of very specialised manufacture that's probably taking place in a relatively small number of specialist centres in the early kingdoms of Anglo-Saxon England under the control of the rulers of those kingdoms, the, the sort of people who were able to bring together the types of resources 
the precious metals and garnets necessary, as well as the um, specialist skills in the form of the craftsman. There are many different stages involved in the manufacture of the objects in many cases. To take, for example, the many filigree pommels in the collection, the gold filigree pommels, which are the predominant type. There's about 40 of them altogether. The body of each pommel was made from gold sheet, and that gold sheet would have been hand-beaten out of gold ingots. And it was beaten down to a fifth of a millimetre in some cases, It had to be uniformly beaten out and then shaped into the correct form. Then that shape would have to be soldered at the join and then that in turn would be burnished. And then when you had that shell of a pommel, they then added the filigree wires to it. The filigree wires that we're looking at are incredibly fine. Some of them are, again, 0.2 of a millimetre, a fifth of a millimetre. And they were hand beaded. They have these little ridges in them. And all of that detail was added by hand. Now, the wires themselves were probably block or strip twisted, which means that they would have cut a very thin strip from the edge of a piece of sheet. Then they would have twisted it until it began to form a wire-type character. And then they would have rolled that between two blocks which would then have given the uniform wire appearance. So we're dealing with very sophisticated uh, metalworking techniques at various stages. Although I, I say sophisticated on the one hand, in other respects, once you've mastered the manufacturing technique, these aren't sophisticated. These can be relatively easily achieved, although time-consuming. And then we have the question of how the filigree wires were attached to the pommels. It's a question we're looking into and we, we don't fully understand yet. Ellie will, we hope, be taking some uh, metallographic samples, which will require a very small section to be cut along some of the broken edges of objects to explore the question of how the soldering of the wires was done. Yeah, because presumably, Ellie, if you've got these tiny wires, which, I mean, they're not much thicker than human hair, presumably, if they're that thin, the soldering process, you have to heat them up, do you? How do you make sure your wire just doesn't melt into nothing? Basically, what you're doing is you're choosing a solder that will have a lower melting point than the actual metal itself. So there'll be a fine point where the solder melts, but the other bits don't. And this is quite an interesting thing, and we're hoping that by the metallographic analysis, we'll be able to see whether or not they're using a copper salt, which you basically put that copper salt and you mix it in with an organic material, and basically what happens is the organic material will burn off as it's heated, and that will produce an area that will attach the filigree. But the other possibility is a more solid-based solder, and that basically uses an alloy that's similar to the gold that you're using, but will have a bit more silver and a bit more copper in it. And we're hoping by seeing the junction between the wire and the sheet, we'll be able to see what kind of solder it is. And Ellie raises an important point there, Pieter, because we talk you know, about the hoard being a treasure of gold and silver, but... There are other materials in there, and the, as Chris was talking about, the construction of the pommels. Some of them are really quite complicated. Yes, and within those pommels as well, there's also organic materials that we need to consider that would have been there originally, but in many cases, actually, they're no longer there. But we do have those traces in some of the pommel caps, and that's one of the research that we're doing into the future, is that we're looking at these remains of organic materials to try and figure out the whole construction of each object. Because sometimes they're bones, sometimes they're wood, there's sort of unknown materials in there, so it's kind of 
helping us understand those objects as a whole object, not just as a part as well. And that's presumably because gold is really quite soft, isn't it? That if you're constructing a sword hilt with gold bits, it needs other things as well. Yeah, definitely. Especially as these were probably weapons of war that you'd taken to battle, you need something quite substantial that isn't going to fall apart, first of all, in your hand, and certainly that you can use as a functional weapon. So certainly they are using stronger elements to create that very substantial base to which the gold and silver were added onto. Then, of course, some of the more distinctive objects in the hoard are the cloisonne cell work where the garnets are inserted into the cells. Do you want to just give us a sense of how they might have been constructed? So, yeah, so the garnets work is very intricate. So they have to first create a cell wall that's essentially created out of a thin gold sheet that's laid on its end and shaped to make the shape of your cell. And then you have your garnets, which was cut. Um, garnets are naturally very hard, so it's very difficult to cut garnets. And then there's the problem that garnets don't have any natural luster to them, so you want your objects to shine. So what the Anglo-Saxons, actually in other cultures, have done as well, is they've used a very thin stamped gold foil behind those garnets. And that essentially acts a bit like a bicycle reflector. So light come in, bounces off your gold foil and back out again. And that gives them that luster that you really want on your objects. But underneath that, to make sure that all your garnets are flush to the surface, because you want a very even looking object, you have an organic material. At the moment, we're just starting research to look at that. We're thinking it's maybe a beeswax. And then mixed with a little bit of inorganic so that... It doesn't have too much shrinkage, that beeswax, and your garnet doesn't sink. So once all your three components are in your cell, then you rub your gold cell on the top, and that keeps your garnet in. So it's a really complicated process, again, and it's so distinctive-looking, Chris, but is it a fashion, this sort of garnet cell work? It's a late Roman fashion, and it gets taken up by early Germanic groups on the continent, namely the Huns, amongst others. Then it also gets adopted and used in um, Francia, in what is now modern-day France. And one of the most famous examples is all the garnet cloisonne regalia from the grave of King Childeric of the end of the 5th century. It reaches Anglo-Saxon England relatively late. We have some garnet gem setting taking place uh, in the 6th century in Anglo-Saxon England, but it's really a style that gets taken up in the first half of the 7th century. I mean, I'm getting a picture there of an art style that's moving across Europe. You know, are we imagining that these items then are assembled by Anglo-Saxon craftsmen? The garnets, presumably, are not necessarily being manufactured here. I mean, how should we think about that? If I was, let's say, Pender, the King of Mercia for argument's sake, and I wanted myself a cloisonne sword hilt, how would I manage that? (laughs) Well, the raw materials, they're coming by trade from the continent, but in turn the garnet sources could be as far away as uh, Sri Lanka and India, although there are also garnet sources in other parts of Europe. So you'd need your raw materials, you'd need your gold and your garnets, but then... Key, of course, who'd need your um, skilled craftsman who knew how to shape the garnets and knew how to build up the um, cloisonne object. It's sort of a honeycomb of cell work, really, which is inlaid with precious stones. 
in this case, enamel was used in other cultures. So you build up your cell work and then you have to lay your garnets in as has already been described. But key is the Anglo-Saxon craftsman in the whole equation. And they needed to have a knowledge of cutting and polishing for the stones. And we believe this was undertaken in Anglo-Saxon England rather than the stones being ready-made and imported. It's something that we're pretty sure the Anglo-Saxon craftsmen were doing because you have to build up your cell work pattern and then shape your stones accordingly. You can't really do it in reverse. Although Anglo-Saxon England is one of the last places to really receive cloisonné decoration, it's certainly not the case that they're producing an inferior form of cloisonné ornament. Some of the objects in the hoard and objects at other sites in Anglo-Saxon England, namely Sutton Hoo, have produced some of the finest examples of cloisonné ornament from anywhere in Europe. We've talked gold, we've talked garnets. We should also talk silver, because particularly in the early days of talking about the hoard, probably the silver wasn't discussed as much, but there is a lot of it, isn't there, Pieter? There is, I guess, in terms of volume, there is sort of 1.5 kilos of it. The problem we have with the silver is it is the most fragmented of the collection. So I think that's why it's taking us longer than the gold to kind of really start to understand it. Lots of the objects have niello inlay in the silver, and to do that you have to apply a black silver sulphide paste into a channel. And just being in the burial environment, those channels have broken. So your once singular object is now 23 little fragments. And it's just taken a little bit more time to start to piece those together. And I think that's kind of why we haven't focused on the silver so much at this point. Okay, but we're starting to focus on the silver, aren't we? We've got, I know, Ellie, you're working on a particular project to look at the silver. So tell us a bit about that. Well, it's sort of to complement the gold study. So the gold study, we were looking at um, whether we could identify workshops or whether or not we could see anything in terms of changes through time. So with the silver, we're sort of trying to do the same sort of thing. And the initial results are interesting, but it's still very early days yet. How does one work silver compared to gold? I mean, is it easier to do, different? Like the gold, the silver in the hoard isn't just silver. There is actually quite a lot of copper in there and a little bit of gold in there as well. So adding those elements will change the working properties of the silver and make it harder to work with. But still, it's a relatively soft material to work with. Chris, I mean, there are obviously gold and silver weapon fittings in the hoard. Is it fashion? Are they? Is one earlier than the other? Is one more valuable than the other? And if we're talking about craftsmen, could I be a silversmith and a goldsmith? Might I change from one to the other, depending on what my patron wanted? <laughs> well, certainly gold by its very nature, as is universally the case across cultures, is more valuable than silver. And you can infer from that what you will, but it's almost certainly the case that a gold-decorated sword hilt would have been more valuable than a, a silver-decorated sword hilt. In terms of whether or not there are other influences, it, it's probable there are. And, it, and one of the other influences may be the supply of precious metal and indeed other materials, precious garnets, through time. And it's when you look at Anglo-Saxon metalwork with a long view across the period from the 5th to the 7th century, you can see what appears to be a change in the availability of certain materials over time, namely gold. And this is tied into shifting trade routes across Europe and the shifting availability of gold. In the 6th century, a lot of gold seems to be reaching Scandinavian countries, for example, but a smaller proportion was getting to Anglo-Saxon England. There are certainly some objects in the 6th century that are gold, but there are far more objects that are made of base material and that have gold gilding. 
it's not until the seventh century that we really start to see what appears to be an increase in the amount of gold. And that's really writ large by the hoard itself. And we think that's because, simply because there was more gold coming into Anglo-Saxon England at the time. And that may be linked to shifting trade routes and in particular a shift towards trade with Francia and more gold coming through Francia instead of through Scandinavia. We think the gold is coming from the East Roman Empire, largely speaking. So where would that be? Byzantium. Sort of Istanbul. That's right. There are other gold ore deposits that were being worked in Europe in the early medieval period. But uh, we think the majority of the gold that was probably used for the objects in the hoard was coming from trade with the continent, probably in the form of Frankish continental coin that had in itself been reworked out of Byzantine coinage. And Byzantine coinage is coming into Western Europe and Northern Europe as a result of tribute payments, in some cases, to Germanic groups, including the Lombards, and tribute payment, large tribute payments that are actually recorded in history. Gold comes in to the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms and would have been controlled by the rulers of those kingdoms in the first instance. It goes into a sort of a royal treasury, if you like, and... From that royal treasury, it is reworked into styles, into sort of kingdom styles we might think of. And these prestige items are then given by rulers and kings to their warrior elites in exchange for a bond of fealty, uh, with the expectation that the warrior would support the king in time of need and in time of warfare. Getting back to the craft that's involved in that process of sort of gift exchange and handing things down. You're probably the person who looks at the hoard as closely as any Pieter while you're doing the cleaning. And obviously you use a microscope for a lot of that. And the hoard pieces are very small. What does it tell us about the level of skill, dexterity, even just the eyesight of the people who are actually making them? I think certainly they had to be probably short-sighted. Some of the small filigree I struggle to see without a microscope. So they're certainly using a section of the population who had a particular skill set that became to them genetically more than something you could learn. You could probably learn to do certain skills, but certainly that very fine detail, I think you would have to have the natural eyesight to do it. In terms of the very small details, some people have suggested that perhaps you started off when you were quite young, so perhaps younger children would do some of the smaller work, perhaps. I guess they have nimble fingers. Exactly, get into little spaces, that kind of thing. I think it's fair to say we we know very little about the actual craftsmen themselves in Anglo-Saxon, or craft people, perhaps I should say. We have relatively limited sources, to reiterate, the objects are the main evidence. I think we can deduce from how fine the metalworking is that it's very likely that they were doing as much as they could in natural light, perhaps outside, and that might be reinforced by the fact that many of the processes they're using would have perhaps created noxious fumes or certainly would have required a fire for soldering, etc. So it's work that they probably would have done outside as much as possible. But they would have required a dark space for some of the work because you need to be able to see the colour of the flames, the colour of the crucibles as you're heating up some of the metals. So you probably would have had a dual-purpose workshop with a dark area and a light area 
for the different aspects of the work. And this is because presumably you don't have a thermometer. The only way you can tell how hot your fire is... ..is by looking at the colour of the flame. And this is where the dark spaces are really necessary to be able to see those colour changes. And they are very subtle colour changes. Going back to, as you were talking about at the start, Ellie, altering the surface, how do you do that? Is a Saxon goldsmithing workshop, as Chris is saying, is it a bit of a noxious, nasty place? It is It is very noxious. The gilding process to gild your silver objects involves mercury and you would be burning off the mercury and that would create a very um, noxious, poisonous um, gas. So you wouldn't want to near, be near the crucible when that was happening. But the other processes, we're not really sure how they were exactly doing the enrichment process. There are a variety of recipes in the Roman period and medieval period. Unfortunately, Anglo-Saxons never wrote anything down about the actual method they were using. But we can use those as examples. And they tend to be things like salts and brick dust and things like that, all put into a crucible. And that's heated for a set period of time. And that will basically turn the salts into a, um, an acid that will react with the metal and remove the silver. So a lot of this would have required you be able to see the colour of the crucible because if you heat the crucible too much, what would happen is you would end up melting your metal, which is a thing you do not want to happen. You want to remove the um, silver but keep the metal intact. So seeing that sort of colour interchange and, and the things going on, you do need to see the colours. Now, you've already just said, Chris, that we don't have a huge amount of information about these craftsmen, but it's obviously a specialist skill. That is it something where, if we did try and think of who that Anglo-Saxon smith was, are they someone who works in the sort of patronage of a king? They don't have their own stock of gold out the back. Yeah, this is, of course, a period uh, with very few written sources, although we can deduce a bit from the sources we do have and from later sources. I mean, one of the uh, interesting things about the earliest Anglo-Saxon law code of King Ethelbert is that the smith seems to occupy a particular status. The Wergild payment, the money payment that you would make if you injured or killed someone in the law code, the Wergild being a staple of uh, Germanic law, the Wergill payment would actually be made to the king. If you killed or injured a smith, you paid the king. It works differently to Wergill payments for other people in society, indicating that the smith is, in effect, the king's man. Now, the fact that, we, on the other hand, we see so little of smiths in other sources, for example, Beowulf. In Beowulf, we find out about prestige items being distributed from the royal treasury. But Beowulf is silent on the matter of the actual production and manufacture of many of the exquisite objects that it describes. In fact, it often describes them as the work of giants or as heirloom weapons. So there was a great mysticism that, that surrounded the production of these objects on the one hand, and yet I, on the other, it, there's no celebration of the smith as an individual in the way that there is the warrior. What we think is that the smith, on the one hand, had a particular status and was a, a, an important individual, but he, it was a, almost an ostracised status. He was other, he was different in society, perhaps because he's associated with these slightly noxious activities, these slightly dangerous activities like fire and mercury, 
Uh, you can imagine mercury seepage into the groundwater is not good for your Anglo-Saxon settlement. So if you're going to have a smith, and we do think these smith sites are attached to high-status residences, I mean, that's what archaeology is suggesting, but you nevertheless have the, the smithing site located at a safe distance. And as you say, we're lucky to have the output of those slightly mysterious, enigmatic... Yeah, we, we have the safe output. <laughs> the exquisite output. The best way to be. So just to round up, I mean, it sounds very much from what you're all saying that we've learned quite a lot about how these objects were manufactured already, but there is still quite a way to go. I wonder, Peter, if you just wanted to conclude on a thought about what's still to come. There's still a lot to learn. There is a lot to learn. And we, yeah, we do have a lot more to do. So in terms of conservation, we've kind of just sort of finished cleaning everything, but there is that task ahead of us of now putting all those fragments together, which is quite a task, really. But also um, documenting as we go as well to make sure that people like Chris and the other researchers also learn from what we're seeing through the microscope. Because we do spend a lot of time singularly looking at an object. So disseminating that information out as well. Great. Well, thank you very much. I feel as if we've got a good handle on the mythical Saxon Smith and his output, but... um, Still many questions left to answer. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.